Yo, episode number 42, coming to you live from the I Am Studios in the heart of Los Angeles. And 42 is a very significant number for a very significant episode. Some of you may recognize number 42 as the jersey number of Jackie Robinson, who broke all kinds of barriers while excelling at an extremely high level from his days at Muir High School in Pasadena to UCLA to finally the Dodgers. Truly Los Angeles and one of the most important people in LA history. And that's the crux of this week's episode. I'm going to try to take 241 years of modern LA history and build a Mount Rushmore. The Los Angeles Mount Rushmore. And let me tell you, this is LA. We're talking about people who've impacted the globe, the universe, really, really, I'm serious, in art, science, sports, culture. And to just choose four names to chisel into one of our glorious, sun-swept mountain ranges, well, that's a big task, but I'm going to do it here. So yeah, Jackie Robinson inspired this episode, number 42, baby. But did he actually make the Mount Rushmore? This, you're going to want to listen to. And hopefully it inspires somebody to go get a chisel out on the Santa Monica or San Gabriel Mountains to start making some of those big rock faces so we could celebrate yet another amazing Los Angeles monument, the L.A. Mount Rushmore. And before I forget, this episode is brought to you by McKenna Cars. McKennaCars.com. With nine dealerships in L.A. and Orange County, all roads lead to McKenna. That's McKennaCars.com. All right, y'all. Let's get into it. So we start with something that happened in L.A. this week. What inspired this episode? I was cleaning out my garage with my wife. And I'm talking a major reorg here. It's the only area in the house that was not pristine. My wife is an interior designer. So got to admit, it's beautiful in our house. She does an awesome job. But the garage, maybe not so much. And going through all these boxes and piles of stuff, I uncovered all kinds of memories, nostalgia, treasures. But the item I was most happy to find was an old newspaper from Brooklyn, published in 1892 called The Joker. Now this, this was very meaningful to me because the publisher was a man named Abe Lovich. That was my dad's great-grandfather. So it's worth mentioning that Lovich was the original family name when my dad's dad's dad immigrated from Russia. And somewhere along the line, that was changed to love it. I believe it was before my grandfather on the paternal side. So that would be my great grandfather. Just a note on that. And he was the publisher of the Joker. And now I'm assuming through heredity and genes, this is the source of my passion for journalism, news and reporting. And it was very cool to have it framed and moved into the studio, the IM Studios. But what's funny is there's a headline that caught my eye says the most important people in Brooklyn. And well, Mount Rushmore wasn't completed until 49 years after that paper was published, not until 1941. So the term didn't exist. But essentially, my great-great-grandfather, Abe Lovich, had a Mount Rushmore of Brooklyn. But it got me thinking, who are the most important people in L.A.? What would be the L.A. Mount Rushmore? And now, I'm talking about today, but... I'm also talking ever in Los Angeles. Let me tell you, this is no joke. 
Pun intended. Get it? The Joker. This was a very, very difficult task. So I do want to put some stipulations around it. And remember, this is my mountain, my rock sculpture. So these are my rules. Here we go. Rule number one. All right. I keep saying ever, but I mean modern LA history. They have to have lived in the 20th century. This eliminates many of the pioneers. And you know, if you've been listening, I'm fascinated with frontier Los Angeles, but it eliminates names and people like William Workman, Antonio Colonel, John Downey, Andrew Boyle, even Biddy Mason, one of my favorite all-time LA historical figures, all eliminated from contention. I do want to make it modern and I want it to be accessible, if you will. Rule number two, I wanted it to be instantly recognizable LA figures. That means there are people that are perhaps more important, more impactful, that did not make the list. For example, Lewis Mayer of Metro Goldwyn Mayer, MGM, or William Fox, the namesake of 20th Century Fox, or D.W. Griffith, film pioneer, not on the mountain. Business leaders, politicians, not on the Mount Rushmore. There are an incredible number of businesses, companies, organizations that came from LA, all of whom had impactful founders and CEOs. I'm talking not just McDonald's brothers and Glenn Bell, but Tom Bradley, Richard Nixon, Antonio Villarigosa. But my rules, they're not included. And this is going to be a controversial one. I try not to include people who are overtly entertainers. Now, this is LA after all. So how can you omit any actors and singers? Well, you know what? There's so many people of theater, comedians, actors, singers, quote unquote celebrities that come from L.A. That unless their impact was profound beyond entertainment, they weren't up for consideration. I'm talking from Charlie Chaplin to John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe to Kim Kardashian, Axl Rose to Snoop Dogg. You will not find them on my Mount Rushmore. And lastly, stipulation number five, and apologies to my Brainiac listeners, but scientists did not make the cut. That means Edwin Hubble, who literally discovered the universe, and Leonard Kleinrock, who paid a major part in inventing the internet, not on the Mount Rushmore. And one more special apology to William Mulholland, my man, my Halloween costume. The person who probably had the single most profound impact on modern Los Angeles. I mean, he's responsible for our water, the L.A. aqueduct, for goodness sake. But the San Francisco Dam disaster, the largest man-made disaster in L.A. history, which was quite literally his fault. Go back to that episode. It's nearly 500 people died after he inspected it and said it was cool. Yeah, that got him eliminated. He's off the mountain. So who did make the list? I'm looking for a cultural impact that will hopefully stand the test of time, or at least until the 22nd century. And again, I want to reiterate, this is my Mount Rushmore, and I know you're going to have feedback. So you know the drill. Every Friday we release the episode, I put up a post, Instagram, TikTok. Make sure you comment. Tell me who I omitted. Tell me who I didn't talk about. Tell me why I'm an idiot. I don't care. You know, I love it. Just send me a DM if you want. I always respond to DMs, so you know I'm here for you on this one. So without further ado, let's get to the Mount Rushmore. Well, first, 
Here's a list of who didn't make the Mount Rushmore, but was in contention till the very end. Bob Hope. Not only was he an entertainer, worldwide figure, but he's very responsible, not just from Toluca Lake to San Fernando, but he expanded the valley. He had an impact outside of entertainment worldwide, but no, didn't make it. Griffith J. Griffith, the man who donated the land that became Griffith Park and the Griffith Observatory. Huge impact, but he shot his wife in the face, and I'm just not okay with that. Mike Davis, who perhaps wrote the most important book on modern Los Angeles city of courts opened my eyes in sociology 101 at UCLA. It was the text and it really made me think of UCLA. I mean, UCLA of Los Angeles in a different context, but now nah, he's a little bit too curmudgeonly, a little bit too cynical for my taste off the list. Snoop dog really, really wanted to include Snoop. He went from public enemy. Number one to the most beloved grandpa in America, Without even changing his personality. This guy's Mr. L.A., but didn't make the list. Kobe Bryant. You see his murals all over L.A., all over the world. Kobe. Kids, six years old. Throw something in the trash can. They say, Kobe. But you know what? I love the man. Love what he represented, but can't be on my Mount Rushmore. Nicolas Martinez. The first street vendor in Los Angeles history. Super impactful. Didn't make the list. Raul Martinez, no relation. Immigrant, American dream story. Story First taquero, pioneer of the taco truck, the food truck. Didn't make Mount Rushmore. Huel Hauser, one of my idols. Nope. Magic Johnson. Sorry, Magic. I want to have you on the podcast one day, but for now, you're not on the Mount Rushmore. Roy Choi. God, Kogi, amazing, changed the way we eat. Again, Los Angeles and beyond, but just not enough of a lasting impact at this point. But Roy, again, if you're listening, I want you on the podcast, but you're not on the Mount Rushmore. Biddy Mason was going to be on the Mount Rushmore. This was an African-American landowner in the middle of the 19th century, one of the most wealthy people in L.A., Again, as a black person in that era, 70, 80 years before civil rights. But she didn't make it because of rule number one. Had to be alive in the 20th century. and She died in 1891. Richie Valens. What a story. La Bamba, Pacoima, plane crash, died 17 years old. Without Richie Valens, we don't have Los Lobos. We don't have war. First superstar Mexican-American entertainer. But just didn't live long enough, frankly, to be on the Mount Rushmore. Amelia Earhart lost forever in one of the biggest aviation mysteries. First woman, first person to circumnavigate the globe in a plane. Los Angeles was a pioneer city of aviation and she was at the heart of it. She lived in Toluca Lake. But not quite enough of an impact to be on Mount Rushmore. And then there's Ruth Handler, who invented Barbie. The biggest selling single figurine toy of all time. Barbie, we're talking about. Mattel, Elsa Gundo, she was the founder. But no, not on the Mount Rushmore. And the toughest omission of all, Vin Scully. I have a microphone 
bobblehead, if you will, of Vince Scully in my office. I have an autographed, canceled check of Vince Scully, frame photo, truly an L.A. icon, grew with the city, helped us grow with the city. But he's not on my Mount Rushmore. So then who is? Who is the Mount Rushmore of Los Angeles, according to In a Minute with Evan Lovett? Figure number one to get your chisel into the rock. Walt Disney. That's right. Walt Disney was born in Chicago. And his family moved to Missouri when he was four years old. And even as a little boy, he would draw. He would copy front page cartoons. And that planted the seeds of what would become, well, Disney. The most famous, recognizable, fun-loving company in the history of the world. Soon they moved to Kansas City. Where he continued drawing, making little pictures and cartoons but he was also introduced to the world of vaudeville and what were called motion pictures movies he also attended courses in an art institute and took a correspondence course in cartooning pushing ahead pushing ahead in high school he was a cartoonist of a school newspaper and by 1918 he attempted to join the army to fight against the germans but he was too young what did he do he forged the date of birth on his birth certificate and joined the red cross anyway as an ambulance driver he was shipped to France. But, alas, the war was over. But he did draw cartoons on the side of the ambulance for decoration and had some of those cartoons published in an army newspaper. So he went back home, returned to Kansas City, and he began an animated film business with his old mentor, Ubi Wor- Ub Iwerks. And he produced animated cartoons called Laughograms for local movie theaters, which had some, some success. They'd show them before the movies, and they were cartoons, and people loved them. But he also made a short film called Alice's Wonderland, which was part live action, live child actor interacting with animated characters. But after it was released in 1923, the studio, his Laughogram studio, went bankrupt. So he left to join his brother Roy, right here in Los Angeles. And Walt was a convincing kind of fellow. He convinced Iwerks and other artists to join him. And what's funny is the Alice's Wonderland actually became a hit even after Laugh-O-Gram had went bankrupt and he moved to LA because a New York film distributor purchased it and signed him to a contract to create six of these Alice comedies with an option for two more. So Walt convinced Roy, his brother, to risk $250, big money at the time. And they'd pursue the films and they'd pursue their dreams. And they founded Disney Brothers Studios on October 16th, 1923. In 1925, they moved the studio to Silver Lake, which became known as the Hyperion Studio. And that would eventually become known as Walt Disney Studio. And that's when they found the rabbit's foot, the lucky rabbit's foot, literally, because they created Oswald, the lucky rabbit. It's a breakout hit when it debuted in 1927. And they produced 25 cartoons featuring the black and white big-eared bunny. But the problem is Disney didn't own the rights to Oswald. The distributor had him, and he was poaching their animators to crank out more Oswald cartoons without the Disney's. So Walt had to pivot and he created a mischievous mouse inspired by an actual mouse that used to run around the old Laughogram studios. 
And he made an eight-minute film featuring this mouse. He called it Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie. And the star of that film was, well, Mickey Mouse, who made his debut, 1928, which also introduced synchronized sound to what had been a silent medium. And now, a New York agent offered Walt $300 to license Mickey Mouse's image, but kept Walt with the rights this time. And that's when the business really took off. Mickey Mouse dolls, dishes, lunchboxes, toothbrushes, radios, figurines. Sound familiar? Yeah, this was the template. By 1930, the first Mickey Mouse book and comic strip were published, and Disney was off to the races. Now, Disney had pioneered the sound film technology. Recorded speech, music, sound effects. And they were also the first to use the Technicolor process. So they produced a film called Flowers and Trees, which won the Academy Award in 1932. And it was the first film. It was a short. It won the the Academy for animated short. But it was the first to bring full color to animation. And again, Walt Disney just forging ahead, blazing a path, changing the world. In 1937... Walt took another major step, made a huge gamble. He took out a mortgage on his house and he financed a $1.4 million picture. Again, astronomical at the time, especially for an animated picture. It was called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And skeptics called it Disney's folly. How could you spend that much money on an animated film? What a loss. He's going to be a loser, bankrupt. Yeah, Walt had the last laugh. That received an Academy Award in 1939, and it would become the highest grossing movie of its time. So that, the success from Snow White, allowed Disney to build a new, larger studio on Buena Vista Street in Burbank, where the Walt Disney Company remains headquartered to this day. Now, the rest you might know. In the 1950s, Disney expanded the amusement park industry. Disneyland opened in 1955 in Anaheim. He diversified into TV, Mickey Mouse Club. He also was involved in planning the 1959 Moscow Fair, the 1960 Olympics, the 1964 New York's World Fair. And by 1965, he developed another theme park, Disney World. The heart of which was going to be a new type of city, the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, or Epcot. But... Unfortunately, Disney was a heavy smoker throughout his life, and he died of lung cancer in 1966 before the park, before Disney World, that is, or Epcot were completed. But Disney's legacy is obvious and probably as large as any man in world history. Well, any modern man, I should say. To put some numbers on it, there are now 12 Disney theme parks, and Disney, the company, grossed 82 billion dollars in revenue in 2022 and the company has 220,000 employees that's because of walt disney now that is a face to be carved into the mount rushmore of los angeles up next we have one of my favorites art lebeau as los angeles was coming to its own the mid-20th century, L.A. was a pretty racist and damn segregated city. It's divided by topography, neighborhoods, race, and class. But in 
but it was Art LeBeau that united the youth of Los Angeles and became the broadcasting legend that still, even posthumously, has an impact in Los Angeles. You don't believe me? Just cruise Whittier Boulevard in East LA or Van Nuys Boulevard on a Sunday night. Some say he helped spawn lowrider culture and is emblematic of car culture, which really, more than any culture, defines Los Angeles. So LeBeau, LeBeau was born in, in Utah, right outside Salt Lake City, 1925. He was born to Armenian immigrants that were observant Mormons. And his father came to the U.S. from the Ottoman Empire. Talk about an American dream story. When LeBeau was 13, his parents divorced and he moved to South Central L.A. where he would live with his sister and attend George Washington High School. And in 1938, he began to experiment with amateur radio from his bedroom. He loved it. It was a hobby. It was a passion. And graduated from high school, went to Stanford and joined the Navy. And that's when he made his radio debut in 1943. While serving in the Navy, he was on KSAN in San Francisco. And that's where he pioneered the request and dedication concept. He would take phone calls from listeners on air while playing records late at night. And the technology wasn't the same as it is now. He would repeat to the listeners what the person on the phone was saying because technology couldn't put them both on at the same time. But the audience loved it. Now, I don't know if there was any sleepy or crazy legs back then, but he quickly discovered that a prime segment of his audience were young women who would call in to dedicate songs to husbands, boyfriends, and brothers in the military. And that's a tradition that not just carried on, but became the status quo for radio. I mean, I don't think we realize how important that was in developing the relationship between listener and DJ. And that's what really helped music grow. It helped put faces and feelings into the music as sort of a narrative. I think that's a very underrated aspect of his legacy. But his legacy was made even stronger because... He was one of the first DJs anywhere to play both black and white artists. He did not discriminate when listeners called to request a song live on air. He was one of the first to allow people of different races to make a request. Now, again, this is a racist time, but Art LeBeau, the music is colorblind. And he used to have his own show he was one of the first to have a live radio show it was a place called scrivener's drive-in in hollywood teenagers would come to the drive-in and hang out give live dedications for the songs and he'd start making a list of the most frequently requested songs i'm going to come back to that because while taking those requests the national craze called rock and roll was starting to starting to make its first move we're talking elvis presley jerry lee lewis little richard and it's just reaching la but he was the first DJ to play rock and roll in the West Coast Airwaves because he listened to those listeners. He listened to the people. And that's what made Art LeBeau. He was a man of the people. And he advanced. He was into doo-wop and R&B and became a local celebrity. And by the late 1950s, he had the highest rated show on LA radio. And he was a promotional destination. He was one of the first to really elevate this new brand of pop stardom. And he was so big, so impactful, that when Elvis first came to Hollywood, guess who got the exclusive interview? The only interview Elvis gave in L.A. in his first trip. Yeah, that's right. Art LeBeau. 
Remember I just talked about making a list of those requested songs? This is going to sound so basic, but he assembled the first album in American history to feature hits by different artists. A compilation album. Art LeBeau was the first one. It's called Oldies But Goodies. And that album stayed in the Billboard Top 100 for over three years and inspired generations of, I'm not going to say copycats, but that was just a thing. And it was an awesome thing. I mean, we used to all make mixtapes, but compilation albums, Art LeBeau. That's right. And now listen to this. He used to host dance shows, but he moved them out to El Monte because the city of LA didn't allow public dances for patrons under 18. So he's like, let's go to El Monte. I want everybody in. And El Monte drew a diverse slate of teenagers from all over. And more importantly, the atmosphere inside the stadium was a one of tolerance. Interracial dating, interracial dancing, even though the city of L.A. didn't yet share those same feelings. It was unacceptable in many neighborhoods, but not when Art LeBeau was around. So finally, by 1981, the city of L.A. actually declared Art LeBeau Day. And he received his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame right at the corner of Hollywood and Highland. And he kept working, kept doing dedications, kept being a fixture on the radio, in lowriders, in cars, Sunday nights, all over Los Angeles. And up until he passed away in 2022 at 97 years old, he still had a weekly show on K-Day. The Art LeBeau Connection Show. 97 years old. And that my friends, is what qualifies Art LeBeau for a carved out spot on the mountain. Number two on the Mount Rushmore of Los Angeles. Next up is a man that I've talked about quite a bit personally on LA in a minute, even here on In a Minute with Evan Lovett. And it's somebody that probably impacted me most profoundly of those on my Mount Rushmore. Maybe, maybe of anybody. To be fully honest, aside from my dad and my mom, my wife, my son, Jonathan Gold, maybe best known as the first and only food writer to win a Pulitzer. But for me and for people in LA, what Jonathan Gold did was he opened the door on cultures and community and he tied the fabric of Los Angeles together through his writing. Oh, his writing. It was so beautiful. I mean, on the surface, it was about food and restaurants. He did a great job and he, he had that insight and he had that palette. But the stories were about the people, the neighborhoods, the culture. And most of all, they're about Los Angeles, the city that we love so much. That's where he was born. Jonathan Gold was born in 1960 to a Jewish father who was a probation officer. And a mom who was a high school teacher and librarian. And Jonathan Gold worked at a restaurant in high school and put himself into UCLA where he studied art and music. And while he was at UCLA, that's when he began working at the LA Weekly, which by the way, had a humongous impact culturally in the 80s and even into the 90s. He was a proofreader. He met his future wife, Loria Ochoa. I bring that up because she's both still impactful for the LA Times and in the LA culinary scene, but she'd also have a huge impact on his career. But what was really the beginning of Gold's legacy was when he started working at the LA Weekly. He said he only had one clearly articulated ambition. Keep in mind, this guy's going to UCLA, but he said his goal, his ambition, 
was to eat at least once at every restaurant on Pico Boulevard, starting with the fried yuca dish served at a pupuseria near downtown and working methodically westward towards the chili fries at Tom's Number 5 near the beach. How L.A. is that? Come on. By the mid-1980s, Gold wasn't just a proofreader anymore. He was an editor in the L.A. Weekly's music section. Yeah, not just talking about food here. He initially was writing about classical music, but he dove into different genres, including hip-hop. We're talking mid-1980s, still like, ooh, hip-hop raps, this bad thing, all these curse words. And he covered the early days of gangsta rap, including a landmark piece that put N.W.A. on the cover of L.A. Weekly and made the gangsta rap forefront of conversation in the United States. And how important is that in retrospect to Los Angeles? So it's about this time at LA Weekly that he started his first food column, called it Counterintelligence, where he'd review not white tablecloth Michigan cal- Michelin caliber restaurants, but under the radar mom and pop spots, what were called quote unquote ethnic restaurants at the time. And that's really the legacy that started defining Los Angeles because he, you could go back and read these reviews. He has a book now, or he had a book that was published right before 9-11, 2001 called counterintelligence where you read these reviews of places that aren't even around anymore. And it's not even, it is talking about the food, but you're talking about the culture. You're talking about the people. You're talking about the city. I can't express that enough. And in 1992, he wrote an article about the LA uprising for the LA Weekly that was so raw and so powerful that it was revisited 20 years later by the LA Times. And it showed that these were the city's wounds, the city's scars. And they had eventually begun to heal, but he wrote about it with such eloquence and such emotion that even now you feel it and you feel yourself there and you feel why his work was so important. And so Gold eventually went on to California Magazine, Los Angeles Magazine, Blender, Spin, Rolling Stone, Details. Even moved to New York for a couple of years to be a restaurant critic for Gourmet Magazine. But remember I just mentioned his, his wife-to-be, his wife, Lori Ochoa? Well, when Jonathan Gold was li- living in New York, she was named editor of the LA Weekly. She said, Jonathan, come move back to LA. Let's do counterintelligence again. So he did. And he published his best restaurants list. Jonathan Gold's 99 essential LA restaurants. Now remember, at this point, LA food wasn't taken seriously. We didn't have enough five-star restaurants. We didn't have enough Michelin restaurants. But he pushed and pushed for tacos, for kebab, for Korean barbecue, for baklava, whatever it is. We had it here in Los Angeles. And he made sure that you knew about it. And he made sure that you knew about the people behind it and the neighborhoods and the culture in 2007 he was recognized he won that pulitzer and finally in 2012 when ochoa went back to the la times gold went to the la times where he went on to win james beard awards the highest award you could get in the food space for writing i mean a pulitzer is a different stratosphere But even Anthony Bourdain described Gold as the first guy to change the focus from white tablecloth restaurants to really cool little places in strip malls. 
And by 2015, they made a documentary about Jonathan Gold, City of Gold, which premiered at Sundance to a standing ovation. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It is incredible. By 2018, Gold was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, a really aggressive form of cancer. And he died within a month, 57 years old. And his remains were interned at Hollywood Forever (laughs) with a tombstone that says appropriately, Tacos Forever. Now, how important was he to the city? After he died, several buildings, including City Hall, were lit up in gold as a tribute to his memory. And there was a new award given by the city, the Jonathan Gold Local Voice Award, honoring writers who are telling stories of their cities, just as Jonathan continually continually shone a light on his beloved Los Angeles. It's difficult to overstate Gold's impact on the culture of Los Angeles. And I want to refer you after this episode, of course, go back to episode 40, the 26 minute mark, Jonathan Gold's description of a taco to really understand his writing and what it means to Los Angeles. I'm going to read a little bit of it. You might actually strike up a conversation with your fellow devotees of the taco one of these days. It's easy to sense something in common with the rest of that shift Though it's true that the commonality often expresses itself in a certain furtiveness around the eyes, if not for the certainty that all is beautiful and holy about the mess of corn and gristle in front of you that would dissipate as soon as you said hello. If you've been there, you know that she, that elusive fire energy of tacos, vanishes seconds after the tacos are served. And unless you're at a first-class taco spot, you'll never experience it at all. So yeah, Hear it in a minute with Evan Lovett. That's the stuff that gets you carved into the Mount Rushmore of Los Angeles. Jonathan Gold, forever. Tacos, forever. Well, Mount Rushmore has four faces. We've gone through three. And I mentioned that this is episode 42. And I don't think any man deserves that number one spot. Number four, chronologically, but the number one spot more than Jackie Robinson. Number 42. Jack Roosevelt Robinson, in fact, was born into a family of sharecroppers in Georgia, the youngest of five children. His middle name, Roosevelt, honored former President Theodore Roosevelt, who died 25 days before Jackie was born. Unfortunately, Jackie's father left the family in 1920, so he moved cross-country to Pasadena to live with extended family. They lived on two small houses as an extended family at 121 Pepper Street. Believe it still stands. My very good friend Josh from above Los Angeles. I, I believe he told me that. But Jackie Robinson's mother worked odd jobs to support the family, and they they grew up in relative poverty. And and if you know Pasadena, it's an otherwise affluent community. It's different, and they're they're historic and hidden neighborhoods there. But Pasadena was still Pasadena. So Robinson and His other African-American friends were excluded from many recreational opportunities. And he joined a gang. But luckily, his friend said, Jackie, you have much bigger things ahead in life. And please leave the gang. Luckily, Jackie listened. So he went to Washington Junior High and then enrolled in John Muir High School. And everybody recognized just how athletic and determined Jackie was. So they inspired him to pursue sports. Well, Now, that was a good move. Robinson played 
football, basketball, baseball, track and field, tennis, all at Muir High. And tennis might have been his best sport. In 1936, he won the Boys Singles Championship for the whole Pacific Coast in the Pacific Coast Negro Tennis Tournament. That's what it was called. But after high school, he attended Pasadena Junior College. He left tennis behind and he continued playing the other four sports. But he set records. He lettered. He started. And he was one of 10 students named to the Order of the Mast and Dagger, which was awarded to students who perform outstanding service to the school and whose scholastic and citizenship record is worthy of recognition. Those were the seeds of the greatness that would become Jackie Robinson. But there was an incident there at junior college that illustrated his impatience with authority figures that he perceived as racist, which was a character trait that would resurface repeatedly and importantly in his life. He was arrested after vocally disputing the detention of one of his black friends by police. Now, luckily, he received a two-year suspended sentence, but that incident gave Jackie a reputation for combativeness in the face of racial antagonism, for standing up with himself. He developed a reputation, but it would prove to serve him more than it would prove to hurt him. And in 1939, he went to UCLA, where he was the first athlete ever to win letters in four sports. Again, baseball, basketball, track, football. But by 1941, he withdrew from UCLA to help his mom care for the family. And he moved to Hawaii to play semi-pro football and work in construction to earn money. 1942, he entered the Army and he became a second lieutenant. But he was court-martialed. He refused to follow an order to sit at the back of the military bus. Again, that reputation was true, but it was strong and it was good. And charges were dismissed and he earned an honorable discharge. But it was foreshadowing his future activism and his commitment to civil rights. So when he left the army, he played professional baseball with the Kansas City Monarchs in the Negro Leagues where he starred and he drew the attention of the president and GM of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey. Now, Branch Rickey had been planning to integrate baseball, but he was looking for the right candidate. And Jackie's skills on the field, his integrity, his family-oriented lifestyle, they all appeared appealed greatly to Branch Rickey. But his main fear was that reputation. Would Jackie be able to withstand the imminent racist abuse without responding in a way that would hurt integration's chances for success? So one of the first times Rickey met Jackie face-to-face, he shouted insult after insult after him trying to be certain that Jackie could accept the taunts without incident. Jackie remained strong-willed, strong-browed. In 1945, Ricky signed Robinson to play on a Dodger minor league team, the Montreal Royals. Well, he dominated the minor leagues. He led that league in batting average, and he was called up to the Dodgers in 1947. An immediate success. Led the National League in stolen bases. Won the Rookie of the Year award. Two years later, won a batting championship, was the MVP. But personally, it was a struggle, to say the least. Fans would hurl bottles, racist epithets. Some Dodger teammates protested against having to play with an African-American teammate. Some opposing players threw balls at him at his head. They'd spike him with, oh, and they're sliding into a base. 
And even some important people in the front offices were unsupportive of Robinson. In the MLB front office, they were unsupportive. Players on the Cardinals threatened to strike if Jackie Robinson took the field. Luckily, the commissioner, Ford Frick, quashed the strike and said any player who did would be suspended from baseball. In a touching move, Dodger captain Pee Wee Reese left his position on the field and put an arm around Jackie in a show of solidarity when the heckling became intolerable. And Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson became lifelong friends. However, those ugly remarks, death threats, and Jim Crow laws that forbade a black player from staying in hotels or eating restaurants with the rest of the team, his experience in the major leagues was tough. It was heavy. It was bleak. It weighed on him personally. So he retired after 10 years with a lifetime average of 311 and six National League championships and one World Series win. He was known as one of the best and most scary base runners of all time. This guy was awesome. I mean, an awesome baseball player, not just for what he accomplished, but his actual baseball talent. And so he retired in 1957. And he engaged in business and civil rights activism. He became a spokesman for the NAACP, made appearances with MLK. And in 1962, he was the first African-American inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, Robinson passed away. In 1972, his autobiography was called appropriately. I never had it made. It was a struggle, but he was truly, truly a hero. And in 1984, he was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor for an American civilian. In 1997, on the 50th anniversary of breaking the color barrier, the commissioner of baseball, Bud Sillig, retired Robinson's jersey number 42, Players had their jerseys retired by teams previously, but for the entire league, I was unprecedented. By 2004, there was a Jackie Robinson day. And that's when Ken Griffey Jr., the superstar of superstars in baseball, received permission from the commissioner to wear number 42 on Jackie Robinson day. And finally, by 2009, all players wear number 42 on April 15th to commemorate Jackie Robinson and his legacy, not just to Los Angeles, not just to baseball, but to the world. And Jackie Robinson came right here from Los Angeles. Now that, my friends, is a legacy, one that gets you immortality forever on my Mount Rushmore of Los Angeles. So you heard about our sponsor today at the top of the show, McKenna Cars. Let me tell you the McKenna Cars story. Check this out. In 1949, when 16-year-old Mike McKenna was arrested for streetcar racing in South Boston, the judge gave him two options, serve time or serve his country. Well, he chose the latter and he joined the Marines. He was sent across the country to Camp Pendleton, where he met Bob Stevens, who would become his new best friend. When Mike and Bob left the service, they moved to L.A., where Bob's father-in-law, who was a retired German doctor, was given one of the first Volkswagen dealerships in Los Angeles. He asked the boys to join him in the biz, and they jumped at the chance. And the VW Beetle gained in popularity. And while that happened, Mike McKenna learned to treat his customers with respect and support. And when Porsche was offered a few years later, they welcomed the new brand by expanding their sales and service departments. Now Mike's son, Danny McKenna, he took over the Volkswagen Porsche operation when his dad moved to Hawaii. 
but they share nine Volkswagen stores and three Porsche stores in California and Hawaii. Now, Danny and his kids manage Volkswagen dealerships in both Huntington Beach and Cerritos, plus the McKenna Porsche and McKenna Audi in Norwalk. They invite you to visit McKennaCars.com and see how easy it is to lease or purchase a new Volkswagen or Porsche. After 70 years in business, you'll experience a team that's firing on all cylinders. That's McKenna. McKennaCars.com. All roads lead to McKenna. Now, one thing to do in Los Angeles this week, appropriately enough, appropriately enough, go to where it all started because there would not be a Los Angeles were it not for the missions. And yes, native and indigenous folk were here and were unfairly and unjustly torn apart and destroyed. And and we're going to discuss that. But the truth is in the modern sense, I want you to trace the footsteps of how this city was formed. Talking about the so-called El Camino Real. You know what that is? Those are those curved poles with bells you see on the side of the 101. That's, that's the El Camino Real, the Royal Road. It connects the mission system in California, including the two in Los Angeles, San Fernando and San Gabriel. And yes, these are absolutely painful symbols of the dehumanization of, of ancestors, of the indigenous people, the real LA natives as well as the domination and erasure of their culture. But the fact is, there's no modern Los Angeles without these missions. And we're talking about a Mount Rushmore, which is recognizing modern Los Angeles. And truthfully, this is where it started. So we acknowledge that El Camino Real is as much a part of California's history as anything else. And it echoed a time when missionaries spread the word of God to native Californians. It's a modern myth. A romanticized relic from the past that was reimagined in the 20th century as a way to boost tourism and entice people to travel. But boy, those bells are sure nice, right? But no, it's serious. It's something to do and it's something to acknowledge. And, and here's where it started, okay? In Spanish colonial times, any road under the jurisdiction of the Spanish crown and its viceroys was considered to be a Camino Real, a royal road. And along Highway 101 between the L.A. and Bay Area, there had already been a continuous footpath. Again, it was a regularly traveled thoroughfare by the native and indigenous people. But it also became the same path used for Junipero Serra and Portola and those folks to, you know, continue to colonize and continue to conquer and continue to missionize. And they were commemorated because this was a different time in 1892 by Anna Pitcher of Pasadena who initiated an effort to preserve this road and there weren't highways at the time there weren't highway signs so she wanted to place these distinctive bells along the road hung on supports in the form of an 11 foot high shepherd's crook also described as a Franciscan walking stick remember these are Franciscan friars these Spanish folk the Junipero Serras if you will and that was the, the road that they had taken, those footpaths. So the first of 450 bells were unveiled in August 15, 1906. And the first one was at the birthplace of the city, the Plaza Church in the Pueblo near Olvera Street. And now there was an El Camino Real Association to mark the route to promote tourism and lobby for government support. And the actual historic route, which had shifted so many times, evaded the trackers. But between 1906 and 1914, there were these roadside markers placed in approximation of the original footpath. 
and the markers assured motorists that they were on the correct route, usually indicating the distance in miles to the nearest mission. So it became a roadway, but fell short of expectations. 1910, the State Highways Act authorized construction of a paved road along the route of the El Camino Real, but construction lagged. Much of the road remained only a primitive trail with these bells on it. There are steep grades to scale, it's tough to build, and it wasn't the, necessarily the right way for the road. And sometimes horses would rescue automobiles trapped in the road. But by the 1920s, the highway construction was complete. In 1925, the state legislature designated it as U.S. Highway 101. And now, theft and vandalism have claimed many of the original bells, but Caltrans has replaced the roadside markers along the entire route from San Diego to San Francisco, especially right here in Los Angeles, right on the 101. And today, those bells continue to guide motorists along the route, but they stay silent about the historical authenticity. But that's something to do. You drive, you see those bells, you know what they stood for. And since we're talking about history, we always acknowledge and appreciate the history here on In A Minute. Now you know what they're here for and what they meant, both good and bad. While you're at it, check out the San Gabriel and San Fernando missions. They really are moving, and they really are the history of Los Angeles. Thank you for listening to episode 42 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. I hope you enjoyed the Mount Rushmore. I want your feedback on who you think was omitted or who you're glad to see was in there. I have to tell you, I'm getting more comfortable and having more fun every episode, and I hope you are as well. So keep that feedback coming. I'm serious. There's so much room for improvement as we continue to grow, please make sure you leave a five-star rating, rating on whatever platform you use to listen. And if you love the show, you have even 20 seconds, please leave a review. It is so helpful in getting us in the algorithm so the show can get exposed to more people. And lastly, make sure you subscribe, follow, and share. It helps so much. And most of all, thank you for being here and thank you for listening. I appreciate you. Wishing you a great week ahead. Until next episode, my friends. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.